0: This morning we're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 3 verses 1 through 13. Uh, If you're visiting with us, we're in the middle of a series on the book of Ephesians and we're asking this question each week, how does the book of Ephesians teach us more and more what it means to become a community of grace? For those of you that have been here throughout this series and will continue to be, there'll be one thing you'll know by the end. Ephesians is about becoming a community of grace. There's a reason we say that every week. Becoming a community of grace. How does this book speak into our lives in that way? Um, Before we turn to the passage this morning, which again is chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. This is on page 977 of your uh, pew Bibles. Before we turn and read that, let's, um, let's pray. Let's come before the Lord whose word this is and ask that he would open it up for us. Let's pray. Father, we do come to you um, this morning in need of your grace. We thank you that you have spoken to us through your word. So we pray that this morning, by your spirit, that it would come alive for us, that we would see its beauty, that we would see its relevance, that we would understand it, that you would drive it home to our hearts, that you more and more would rivet the gospel to the realities of our life, that you might be honored in our life. We need you. So we pray, pray that you would come to us by your spirit it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Let's read together this. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is for your glory. Uh, maybe you've had an experience that uh, I have often; it's become all too common. Something goes wrong. Something goes wrong in your house. Um, you've bought something and it stops working. Uh, your electricity goes out. Um, you, You've got to check on a bill. And so you, you make a phone call to the, to the company. And okay, after it asks you if you speak English or Spanish, then the next thing it asks, uh, it, it'll then say something like this, um, please pay attention, because the menu options have changed. And you're thinking, I didn't know what the first ones were, but these are the new ones. So then you have to pay attention. Nine different things are listed. And you have to try to categorize yourself and decide which one of those really speaks to the immediacy of your need. And then you choose one and you hit the button, and that takes you into the next series where you then have to enter in a 19-digit code. And it'll take you through three or four levels of this. And suddenly you can find that you've been on the phone for 15 minutes. You have a very simple question, and it's 15 minutes of speaking to computers and punching in buttons. Some of them say, you can punch in the buttons, or you can just say the word that you want. And then it'll come back and say, I'm sorry. I didn't understand. Please repeat. Now, it used to be that on on almost all of these systems, it never said this, but if you pushed zero, it would take you straight to an operator. But they've all figured that out, and it doesn't work anymore. I'm sorry, that's not a valid menu option. Uh, Maybe you've been in an experience like this, where, again, you you need some information, you need something, you have a trouble, you're trying to get to the answer, you're trying to get to help, and it's (laughs) layer upon layer of distance. All I want is a live human being to speak to. I don't care if they're overseas. Just patch me through. <laughs> and But you're stuck again and again just trying to get what you need. We're going to talk this morning about what does it mean to have access to the things that we need most. So many things in our life we feel blocked. We, we have trouble getting to what we need. Whether it's an answer or a person or something to help us. And so many of us, I think, Perhaps feel the same way in our relationship with God. There, There's these series of hurdles to get across before I can actually get to him. I've got to go through the menu. I have to listen to the options again. I have to pick the right one. How can I possibly get through? How am I going to push the right button? How are we going to have access to God? Now this Sunday is Reformation Sunday. It's the time of year every year where we celebrate what God did 500 years ago in uh, bringing the gospel back to light in what we would say would be uh, reminding the world again that we are brought to God through the grace of Jesus Christ that that once again began to shine brightly in the world and one of the questions the reformers were wrestling with was exactly this how do we have access to God what is it that brings us close to him Um, Martin Luther kicking off in many ways um, the most obvious aspects of the reformation you know, this is his question. How do we have access to God? Is it through praying to the saints? Maybe you know the, the conversion story of Martin Luther. He's, he's traveling through the wilds of Germany, and there's a, it's a stormy night. There's thunder. There's lightning. He's terrified. Lightning strikes the tree next to him, and he cries out, Saint Anne, help me, and if you do, I'll become a monk. And he survives the night, and so he feels compelled then to go enter a monastery because Saint Anne has intervened in his life and saved him. And he went on to ask this question, what is it that gives us access? Is it the saint? Is it through performing the mass? Is that how we approach God? Is it through our good works? Is it through the indulgences of the church? We pay a little money and they forgive us of our sins. And the answer of the Reformation, I would say the answer of Scripture, is that our access comes in Christ alone. And that was one of the banners of the Reformation, that only in Christ are we given access? To the point of our passage this morning, our point we're going to be talking about today is that in Christ we now have unlimited access to the Father. We have unlimited access to the Father. The, na- the door is now thrown wide open between us and God. And we're going to ask just three things about this access. Who can have it? What does it reveal? And what does it do? Okay, open access to God. We've been given it in Jesus. Who can have it? What does it reveal? And what does it do? Let's take a look first at the first question: Who can have it? You'll find this in verses one through nine of chapter three. This passage is interesting. It opens up as a as a prayer in verse in verse one. For this reason, I Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, and he's going to go on and pray for them. And then, in typical Pauline fashion, he gets distracted for the next <laughs> thirteen verses, and so he'll come back to this. If you notice in verse fourteen, he he goes back to it. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. So next week we'll get into the actual prayer. And this is the parenthesis. He begins to pray for them, and then he reminds them again of this great access they have to the Father. And he goes on in those first few verses to repeatedly use the word mystery. He says there's a mystery here, and this is something we've spoken about in previous sermons in this series. Um, God's grace was given to me for you, verse, two, verse 3, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I've written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. Which which men in other generations do not know, as it's been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Verse six. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Uh, In Scripture, when he talks about mystery, when Paul talks about a mystery, a mystery is something that was hidden and has now been revealed. Paul says, "Here's the mystery. Here's this angle on the mystery." that now Jews and Gentiles are made into one people. We talked about this last week, the dividing wall of hostility, this great break that went right through the middle of humanity. Paul has told us in the passage preceding this, and he goes on to explain that this has now been healed in Jesus. That in Jesus, Jews, Gentiles, everyone can find access to God in the same way. They're made into a new humanity. Uh, listen to this qu- quote by John Stott. Um, the, when the Jews first came into the faith as Jesus comes and proclaims it, there's this huge discrepancy, huge debate in the early church of how, how are the Gentiles to be incorporated. The promise was given to Abraham in the Old Testament that God says to him, he says, you're going to be my you're going to have descendants who will be my people. And, it says, and he says, they will, um, they will be a blessing to all nations. There's always been this promise that the promise of God was going to flourish for everyone. But the question became, how? And so for the average first century Jew, they would have said, uh, the Gentiles are going to benefit from the promises of God by becoming Jews, by um, becoming circumcised, by submitting themselves to the regulations of what it means to be a first century Jew. And this is what so took the church off guard, that yes, one people of God now, but all the restrictions have been torn down. That Christ would be for all people, but it's not by all people becoming Jews, but all people being set free in Christ. Here's what um, John Stott says about this. Uh, What neither the Old Testament nor Jesus revealed was that the radical nature of God's plan, which was that the theocracy would be terminated and replaced by a new international community, the church, That this church would be the body of Christ, organically united to him. That Jews and Gentiles would be incorporated into Christ and his church on equal terms without any distinction. This is what rocked the new church. Wow. You're saving us this way. You're making us a new people in this way. That means the great historical surprise for them was that every conceivable group is now given the same freedom of access to Christ, Jews and Gentiles, Men and women, rich and poor, the above average, the below average, the old, the young. Galatians 3.28, Paul says it this way, There's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. There's this beautiful picture in the book of Revelation, chapter 5 where God's wonders are being proclaimed in heaven. It says this, They sang a new song saying, Worthy are you, Jesus, to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. The implication is that the gospel is for every kind of person, in every conceivable culture, in every place, in every time. Who is the gospel for? Paul tells us that Christ has opened the gates wide, that people from every conceivable background are now invited in. So who's it for? second thing this passage talks about is what does it reveal? Verse 10. Let's read that that verse again together. Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. What is this? Access to God that we've now been given. this Access to the Father. What does it do? What does it reveal? What does it proclaim? It's another way of asking, what does it do when the gospel really begins to um, play out in people's lives? Well, what it says here in verse 10 is that God is at work through his church. This new united humanity. And that means... Again, the church through all ages, the church in all places. And it also means local congregations. And it says that the work of the church displays God's wisdom to the authorities and the powers. More on that in a minute. But just soak that in for a second. God's wisdom is shown in creating the church and bringing all these people together into one body. Uh, He goes on to say it's the manifold wisdom of God on display. Uh, This is the Greek word here. It's it's often used in poetry. Uh, There's a poet that, that speaks of the manifold hues of a garland of flowers. That you would look at this thing and you would see its beauty from all different angles. Its various shades. That it's something that reflects amazing beauty. Paul says the church does that. It shows the wisdom of God. Now again, as we've said often... You kind of take a look around and think, really? How surprising. But he goes on to say that the church is on display. He says, for the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. We've come across this kind of phrase a couple times in Ephesians. What's Paul saying? He's saying that there really is a spiritual reality. And there really are spiritual beings. And he said, in, in the heavens, the wisdom of God is displayed for everyone and everything to see. In the church. That we, as God's people, are on display giving glory to God's wisdom. If that's true, if God is wise, if he's showing his wisdom in the church, uh, that must mean that God knows what he is doing. That God's bringing glory to himself through the church in one of the most surprising ways. Is that our expectation? As we look around, that we would be a people that really do show the wisdom of God to all the dwellers of heaven to all the world, to the whole universe. God points to us, points to the church, He points to Grace Covenant, and He says, this is my wisdom in, on display, and all of heaven is in awe of that. Who does the gospel come to? Who's it for? What does it reveal? And then lastly, what does it do? This is mainly in verses 11 through 13, this new access. What does it do in our lives now? If you're somebody who's following Jesus, as this gets more and more into your bloodstream, as it gets more and more under your skin, what's it doing in our life? As it becomes more beautiful to us, more central to us, more fundamental to the way we look at ourselves and the world, everything around us, where people have been given access to the Father, what does it do? Well, it does, it does something immediate, and it does, some, it does something immediate and objective. It gives us actual access to the Father. Because of what Jesus has done for us, the door between us and the Father has now been opened. And it's not a swinging door. It's now been nailed open. It's now got a door jam stuffed in it and it can't be removed. It's now propped open. Back to our call to worship, Psalm 24, "...who may ascend the hill of the Lord, who shall stand in his holy place, who can have access to God?" And the answer is, all who come to him in the name of Jesus." Now, we have trouble believing this, frankly, that if you're, some, if you're someone who's put your faith in Jesus, that you really do have that kind of access to God now, that I really have that kind of access. There's no longer any impediment of any kind that your sin has been taken away, that it's been dealt with in Jesus, and that you can now have access, you now do have access to the Father. Um, our kids, Henry and Caroline, are at the racing around the ha- house stage Caroline's a little over two, and she's fast. Henry's trying to learn how to walk, but when that doesn't work, he, um, he's the fastest crawler I've ever seen. So they do loops around our house, and then they'll go into one of the rooms, and somebody will slam a door. Caroline's at the age and height where she can sort of reach up and open it now. But Henry, he loves to close doors. When he closes it, he's stuck. There's, and he gets on the inside of the door, and he closes it. His body's right there, you know, jammed up against He's stuck. He loves to close doors. There are lots of closed doors in my house. Every time I turn around a corner, something's closed in my face. The gospel tells us that all those doors have been opened. Now we run around like toddlers thinking that we can close them. But we now have to reach up and grab the door handle so that we can somehow try to slide through. What is Paul telling us? The door is open. Open access. No more closed doors for us. So it does something immediate and objective. That is the status it gives us, the reality that now becomes true in our life. But it does something over time to us as well. What does the gospel do to us? What does access to God do to us? Um, it makes us over time realistic and realistic and honest and optimistic and bold. Okay, these are two things the gospel does to us. It makes us realistic and honest, and it makes us optimistic and bold. First, the gospel makes you realistic and honest. Uh, Paul was realistic, for example, about the external situations of his life. Back in verse 1 of chapter 3, and he mentions it at the very beginning of the book, he says, I'm a prisoner. He was likely in prison in Rome, waiting to have his case heard by the emperor. But it's interesting that he says, I'm a prisoner for Christ Jesus. He doesn't say, I'm a prisoner of the emperor Nero. His place in Christ is the defining reality for him regardless of his situation that means that you also and i also can look at the external situations of our life and say this i am in christ i enjoy the favor of our god i have access to him my external situations can't touch that can't tear me away from that my life in christ is more fundamental than my situation He's realistic about the external situations of his life. And he's honest about his own track record. Look at verse 8. Uh, to me, though, I am the very least of all the saints. Now you read that and you think, okay, this is um, rhetorical exaggeration. But if you're familiar with the story of Paul, uh, and it's told for us three times in the book of Acts, again and again we hear the story of Paul and how he was converted. He was a murderer of Christians. He was persecuting the church, he was running away from God. And God very literally knocked him off his horse one day and blinded him. And Jesus said to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He's been killing Christians. Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? You're persecuting my people. You're really persecuting me. And everything about his life changed. Brought from death to life. Brought from blindness to being able to see. Brought from being an enemy of God and an enemy of his people into a new adopted child of the kingdom. And one that God used mightily, obviously, in in ministry. Paul looks back when he says this, the least of all the saints. I think Paul meant it. He knows what he was when Jesus found him. And it gave him um, a realistic honesty about his life. Can we look at our own personal histories right in the eye with utter honesty and realism and say, I am in Christ? And the forgiveness that is in Christ is more powerful than my sin. Now, what is it that stands in the way for you and for me from being realistic and honest about who we really are? Um, back to the situation like Paul, can you admit when your life is hard? Or do you feel the burden and the responsibility to make everything just seem okay? Um, I'm fine. Christians are supposed to be happy. My children are great. My job is wonderful. My relationship with my spouse, it's deep. Nay, I'd even say sublime. (laughs) The Christian permagrin. What's Paul saying? I'm a prisoner. Can you look, and when that's true in your life, say, I'm a prisoner too. Yeah, let me tell you the reality of my life right now. Can you admit when life is hard? Second thing, can you be honest about your own failures and sin? Can you stand to have other people point them out to you? When you're confronted by somebody else, your spouse, a coworker, a friend, are you defensive? Are you always making excuses? Are you always shifting the blame? Or are you, are you able to say, without any brashness, without a hard heart, are you able to say, yes, you're right. What you're saying is really true. Um, Last night, I was confronted by my wife about something in my life. And what did I do? Well, it's because of this and that and my schedule. It wouldn't have happened if this, you know, there I am, spinning and spinning and spinning. Here's all the reasons that is the case. Rather than, it took me about half an hour to get there. Okay. You're right. You're right. It's true. It's true. What's stopping us from admitting what is true about us? There is good news for us. We have access to the Father through Christ. We've said several times over the last few weeks, in Christ we're now, we're now Velcroed to Jesus. We're stuck to Him. Wherever He goes, we go. And He brings us right up into the very presence of God. So that means we really can be realistic about our lives because our hope really isn't in our situation. It really is in Christ. Here, Paul speaks of being in prison. Here's what he says in 2 Corinthians 11 as he sort of goes through uh, his resume of ministry. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys. In danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles. Danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers in toil, hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. You might have just as easily have said this. I've had financial setbacks. I've known poverty. I've known chronic illness. I've known abandonment by my friends. Paul's list of, here's what life has looked like for me. See, when Paul preached, he never held up this picture of a comfortable life or physical or emotional or mental healing in the present or success or abundant living because of the gospel. Instead, he said that we're brought into Christ and given new access with the Father, a new hope, a new family, a new status, a risen Lord who one day is coming back. And because of that, he could be realistic about his own life. He didn't have to gloss over it. He didn't have to make it sound good. He didn't have to pretend he was fine when he wasn't. And the gospel, the good news of our access to the Father, can free us to be realistic about the situations of our own lives, too. And it can free us to be honest about our own brokenness and sin. Free enough in Jesus, can you imagine this? Not to have to hide anything. Not to evade. Not to be defensive. When you know that your sin is a big thing and not a small thing. When you know that Jesus paid the ultimate price to free you from it. But that you have indeed been forgiven and you can be honest. You no longer have anything left to fear. See, there's something contradictory about a defensive Christian, about somebody who can't look themselves in the mirror or let somebody else take a good close look at them. You're right, of course. You don't know the half of it. And yes, I desperately need Jesus. The gospel makes uh, makes you realistic, It makes you honest. It also makes you optimistic and bold. First optimistic, verse 7. Look at what happens to Paul, this least of all the saints. Verse 7. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of His power. I was an enemy, and now I've been made a minister of the gospel. I was the very least of the saints, and this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Verse 9, that he would be the one that God uses to bring to light this mystery of the ages, that God was creating one new people out of two. God found Paul as he was a persecutor, a violent opponent of Christ, but he didn't leave Paul there. He graciously used him in the work of ministry. What better person than Paul to preach the unfathomable riches of Christ? Someone who knew how desperately he was in need of riches like those. What better person than you to give testimony to the unsearchable riches of Christ in your life. God graciously uses us in his work of ministry in the world too. In the middle of our current situation, whatever prison you feel like you're sitting in, whatever unfavorable situation, God wants to use you and me right now in the middle of your real life and not the dream life you're still trying to attain. This real life, this real situation, this is where Jesus finds you, and this is where he's going to use you. He found Paul on the road to Damascus killing Christians. Wherever he finds us, he makes use of us, and he changes us. The gospel makes you optimistic, and it also makes you bold. Verse 12, in Christ we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Another way of translating this is boldness to enter confidently into the Father's presence humble and bold. Paul, the least of all the saints. He knows that he can boldly and confidently come into the presence of Christ, that he's been given this confident access, not because of his works, not because he earned it, because of Jesus. Because we are in Christ, we have that very same access. We can come boldly, not in abject fear, not needing to win God's favor, but having been granted God's favor. One implication of this, we can have great confidence in our prayers. Does this feel like a reality to you? Whatever point in your day or your week, you stop and you pray. Do you think there is a door in heaven that is jammed wide open now? I am invited to come into the presence of the Father. Jesus himself brings me there. Come into his presence, receiving his favor. If you believe that, wouldn't it make you want to pray? If you really thought that's what you were doing, if you're coming into the presence of a God who has brought you in and says, tell me whatever you want me to know. Ask whatever you would like. Let's really talk. He brings us into his presence. We have a guaranteed audience with the king of the universe. So when a Christian bows his or her head to pray, we ought to be thinking we're doing the most powerful thing in the universe. We're coming before our God who actually invites us in, actually listens, and actually has the power to meet us in the middle of wherever we are. So what's standing in your way of enjoying access to the Father, the humility, the realism of the gospel, the optimism and the boldness of the gospel? My prayer for us, certainly for me and for all of us, is that more and more, this isn't just simply going to be a theoretical truth in our life, but it's actually going to be a dynamic reality that feels like a part of life. Okay, he tells me that I have access. I'm going to take a step into that. I'm going to pray with that in mind. When I'm stuck in the hardness of my heart, I'm going to take a step into that. I've really been granted forgiveness. I have access to the Father. I can face up to the reality of my life. May this be more and more a truth for us. Let's pray. Father, we do come before you, and with faltering steps, we attempt to do that boldly because you have given us access to you. What an unspeakable privilege. Father, we pray that this week that that would be more real to us. That you would teach us to be realistic and be honest. And also to be optimistic and bold. Because our sin does not have the final say in our lives, but rather the gospel. May that be more and more sweet to us this week. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing our hymn of response. This is number 175. Hallelujah, what a Savior.